0: One of the strategies that actually um, marketing people, in particular some marketing people in Silicon Valley, a guy called Regis McKenna, in fact, I think was a pioneer of this, started to realize that the way that you can market and sell technology to the end user, to the consumers, is to um, personify the brand. So that Steve Jobs was actively marketed and, you know, he was an image of him became um, important to the marketing and sales of the technology.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame. I'm Jamie Berger. This is episode 25. Today is January 18th, 2017, which means that tomorrow sucks, but will not be the end of the world. Or at least that's what I keep telling myself. My guest today is David Brock, but just to clear this up right now, as much as I'd like to lure you who may have wandered in here by mistake, it is not David Brock, American political operative author and commentator who founded the liberal media watch group Media Matters with the good hair. Google him, he has really good hair. Not him. This is a different Dave Brock, and rather than go further in introducing this David Brock, we'll let Dave handle that, which he does quite well at the beginning of the conversation. It's completely coincidental, but as I said, I'm recording this intro on inaugural eve, 2017, and Dave and I spoke on election day, last November. So if you detect an all-but-forgotten tone of hope and calm, there it is. It'll be back someday. I'll tell you more about Dave and where to find his work on the other side. Thanks.
2: Hello, Dave.
0: Hello. How are hey. you? I'm <laughs> very
2: well. Tell us who you are and what you do and how you've come to do it. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, for work, uh, I've been working in the history
0: of technology, history of science and technology, but mostly technology for um, ages and ages now. Uh, started since probably 1998, I've been working as a historian of... Technology primarily. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Were you a historian by training?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I started off in life thinking that I wanted to do something technical, like be a scientist, um, an experimental scientist of some kind. And then when I got to college, and I realized that the actual doing of science was very different from a kind of very cartoonish vision of science that I had (laughs) been brought up on uh, in the culture, in science fiction, but also in school. Um, Then I became really interested in, you know, if science isn't this clear-cut, straightforward process, um, but is this really human, messy, complicated thing, uh, How you know, what is... How is was it still able to accomplish all these things? And, um, so I've kind of been interested in exploring that question ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, and did that, um, you know, did, looked at that from various perspectives. So as an undergraduate, I got into philosophy of science, thinking that was a way to get at those questions. And in the end, uh, didn't find that approach um fully satisfying so then i looked at um so then i went and studied the sociology of science studying communities of like scientists and engineers Mm -hmm. from a sociological perspective and trying to use sociology to explain what they do and at the end of that um The people I was studying with suggested to me that I was more of a historian than a sociologist, (laughs) which was not a diss on their part. And, um, you know, then started doing history of science and technology Mm -hmm. and have kept with that.
2: Mm -hmm. Which has led you
0: to now. Which has led me to now, where I am uh, in a finish, almost finished my first year in a new role, which is... um, my title is the director for the Center for Software History at the Computer History Museum, mm-hmm. which is in Mountain View, California, right in the thick of mm-hmm. things there. Home of Google? Yeah. In fact, the museum is um, completely surrounded by Google. Their headquarters is just down the street that the museum is on, Shoreline mm-hmm. Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And um, Google is really taking up all of the commercial real estate Mm -hmm. on that side of the highway. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. I see those little Google marshmallow Mm -hmm. robot cars. Really? Constantly. Yeah. (laughs) They train them in, in that neighborhood. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting place to be Mm
2: -hmm. and a great location for Mm -hmm. a museum on computer history. Yeah. And we were talking recently about how it might be interesting to have you talk, uh, On this because you have been doing profiles of people who are I'm trying to think of what we should call this if it were a recurring segment. The most unfamous, famous people you the most the (laughs) people who've made the most famous things or made made things possible that are super important but you've never heard of them. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that is basically it. It's the the, you know, pantheon of the unfamous or something, Mm -hmm. or the least Deservingly obscure people Or something I I don't know Um, But it is true And there's um, For a lot of this work I've been doing In history of technology um, I've been doing A lot of oral history Which is very Mm similar Just really in-depth Life and career interviews Yeah um, Because most of the technology (coughs) Most of the science and technology That's ever gone on Has gone on very recently Most of the scientists and engineers and technical people who have ever lived are living right now. Um, And a lot of the materials with which historians have relied to create history, to write history, documents, you know, aren't in the same sort of supply and accessibility that they have been when you're looking at the period from 1970 to the present, which Mm -hmm. is where the bulk of the kind of... um, computer story happens right. but you um, have a lot of audio and video so we do yeah the museum the computer history museum has been aggressively doing videotaped interviews with people for um around a decade and they they have uh the museum has a collection of 800 mm-hmm. oral histories which are just a f- fantastic resource right.
2: so is there someone you've thought about starting us off telling us about
0: well i was just thinking about that um you know it's it's kind of like degrees of obscurity but there is there is a um there is someone i think uh, a person who really made absolutely fundamental fundamental contributions uh to the way that we live now that absolutely nobody knows about Mm -hmm. um and his name uh was he's now deceased? Uh, he died in the 1990s. His name uh, was Jean Arnie, um, and he was a, a Frenchman um, who came to the U.S. in the 1950s, um, and then lived and worked for his uh, pretty much his whole professional life mm-hmm. as a as a scientist. He was a physicist um, in the United States. But he was a, he's a very interesting character. He had um, two PhDs, one, I think, one from a university in Switzerland and one maybe from Cambridge in the UK. So a very bright guy. And um, he, as a, as a young man, uh, he was recruited to join the first laboratory devoted to silicon electronics in what became Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. a place known as Shockley Semiconductor Laboratories. So he was maybe 30 at this time, 1957. And what Jean Ernie did in between basically 1957 and 1960... Uh, was to really come up with um, the way for making silicon electronics um, that we still use today. Um, It was a particular advance called the planar process, which was an advance in the technique for making silicon electronics in this this sort of chemical printing process for making silicon electronics um, including the microchip which kind of came out of this planar process Um, but with some extreme variations and elaborations it is still in essence the way that we make these microchips Mm -hmm. now whatever um, nearing 50 years on or no I guess it's nearing 60 Mm -hmm. years on and, uh, the consequence of this planar process, uh, really pioneered by Jean Arny because a lot of the, the fundamental idea behind it was essentially a heretical idea at the time. It was against all of the accepted kind of wisdom and experience in the electronics industry about how you made silicon electronics. But, um, by just kind of really questioning these fundamental kind of premises and exploring this heretical idea, uh, he unlocked a huge vein in the history of technology that's just completely (coughs) kind of reshaped the world. Um, And
2: uh, yeah, very, very much uh, unknown did he crave more uh, credit outside of that? I don't know. You know, he was um,
0: within, um, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. He may, he may have wished, I mean, the, the kind of cycle of credit um, and credit for a discovery and an invention is like a big thing in scientific and technical communities. Um, I don't know, I, I actually should know that, okay. but I don't, uh, about you know how many awards he got or that mm-hmm. sort of thing. He was a bit of a curmudgeon, so mm-hmm. that may have worked against him in terms of mm-hmm. getting awards and things like that. However, he used his kind of dissatisfaction and his disgruntlement as a kind of creative energy to come up with a lot of his... Um, best work, it's interesting people's creative technique Mm -hmm. Jean Arnie would really um, in talking to people who worked with him for a long time in some of his most creative periods, it was when he would get really pissed off he would go away and he kind of used that emotional energy um, in his creative process Mm -hmm. whatever it was so um, yeah maybe he Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been as Mm -hmm. productive as if he had been
2: more successful Mm -hmm can you think of any tales of people who who didn't get their due or their credit or their or 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 you know or uh material success from inventions or 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 tweaks of things that changed the way we function every day
0: hmm that's a good question yeah. you know i think that there's actually there's actually a whole world of that um There's actually a, a huge, huge world of people who haven't, um, had the credit they deserve for the part that they've played in the story of, uh, whatever technology they were associated with. Because I think that, um, you can think of something like, um we'll take a recent example that I was reading about the microprocessor. Mm -hmm. So your Intel chip or whatever your Apple chip that's in your iPhone, um, you know, the central processor there is a a microprocessor Mm -hmm. and that the first microprocessors marketed as like a commercial product appeared in the early 1970s um, from Intel corporation. And, um, intel has made quite a business out of microprocessors so I to hear. this day <laughs> um however so but the question of you know who invented the microprocessor is is an interesting one or who invented x you know insert whatever you want computer smartphone television <clears throat> any technology there is there's a real tendency in our culture to want to ascribe that mm-hmm. to a person. To Marconi. and invent, Right. Yeah. One person, one hero. Yeah. And um, what's fascinating is, is that's not how it works. I think that, you know, to, to some, after looking at this stuff for whatever, 20 uh, something uh, approaching you know tw- tw- well more than twenty years of looking into this stuff, what? I think that um, that that hero vision um, that that impulse to ascribe an invention or a discovery to an individual is fundamentally wrong. I think it is really if you had to it is a group. Mm-hmm or a community that stretches out in space and time that's more properly like the author of any given, um, invention or discovery. And that makes it different from something like, you know, um, some other cultural productions like,
2: um, a book but it makes it, it but it makes it similar to something like rock and roll or hip hop where you can't ascribe it to barrier Berry or Elvis Chesley yeah. to you a know? genre yeah mm-hmm. yeah. did it start in the Bronx
0: who knows um, but it, but it is more properly um, I think thought of as the achievement or the authorship uh, <coughs> uh, of a group and so I think with anything you pick out in the history of science and technology um, there is a process in our culture where the credit really goes to you know, one name or a set of very few names and it leaves out um, all of the other people who are members of the relevant community um, for that. So in technology, you often have a case in which you'll have a whole set of people doing a whole set of activities that bear some family resemblance to one another Mm -hmm. they're not exactly the same but they're clearly trying they're working in the same sort of area and Mm -hmm. they're trying out a similar sort of a thing and then one of those activities will really strike this um sweet spot (coughs) where you know, the economics align and the market aligns mm-hmm. and the timing aligns and this and that. And it will become the successful, the successful trial amidst this whole field of other attempts. Mm-hmm. And um, you'll also see that in the history of science um, where you'll see people, different people uh, around the same time are playing around with ideas that aren't identical, but they're mm-hmm. similar. And then one will kind of, um, you know, be more successful than the others in mm-hmm. terms of spreading or yeah. uh, whatever. Yeah. And and then the other people who were part of the milieu, who may, the mm-hmm. eventual hero may have been interacting with, you know, kind of fade. And we see this every year mm-hmm. with the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. You know, every single year, it's like a lesson that it's not one person or it's not three people, which I think in the sciences, you know, you can only give it a Nobel Prize for one kind of achievement to the maximum number of people who can share the prize is three people. Oh, really? For any given thing. So every single year, it is a an object lesson showing um, that the model doesn't really fit because mm-hmm. every year there's a discussion of mm-hmm. who was left out who mm-hmm. should have had it yeah it, and
2: it seems like you know even more so than in say a Nobel for for medicine or physics in computer science not only that but the it seems like these these charismatic non-scientists, even figures like a Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. become the person getting the credit. Yeah, um, there's there's an, Larry Ellison. I yeah. don't know what he started as, but he's just a, a loud guy with a lot of money. Who's you know? Well,
0: this is a this is a kind of interesting <clears throat> thing. You know, like why do we know Steve Jobs? Why do we know Larry Ellison? Why do we know Bill Mark Gates. Zuckerberg? Why do we know Bill Gates? And there is. Certainly for all of those people, there's a reason why we should rightly know their name. Mm-hmm. But there's an added dimension, too, which is um, for, a lo- for many areas of technology today and, for, and maybe even a greater proportion in the past – Kind of sales and marketing of technology was kind of engineer to engineer technologist to technologist so um, so the sales and marketing itself could be very
2: technical mm-hmm. yeah and and and, and, and Uid uh, user interface is yeah right, yeah I mean that you know the makes the iPhone the iPhone is that the, the UID techno- technological genius I will never know who that is. Right, you know, right. Who shows it to Steve, and Steve says, "Nah, yeah, make more of that." Right. Yeah. Well,
0: well, the thing, make the
2: touchscreen work better.
0: There is that kind of impresario thing, but there's what I was sorry. Uh, well, no, but it's it's a very right. You don't know about all the right. people pitching ideas to this kind of like uh, taste director. Right. Um, but what I was going to say is that as technology that becomes something marketed more directly to consumers, mm-hmm. one of the strategies that actually um, marketing people, in particular some marketing people in Silicon Valley, a guy called Regis McKenna, in fact, I think was a pioneer of this, started to realize that the way that you can market and sell technology to the end user, to the consumers, is to um, personify the brand so that Steve Jobs was actively marketed and, Mm -hmm. you know, he was... An image of him became um, important to the marketing and sales of the technology. Similarly, I think, um, you know, today... Today, I think that has become commonplace where you... um, kind of create an image of a founder um, and and incorporate that into the branding of the technology or of the company. Mm-hmm. So that's why we know some of these people today, like the Google co-founders or Mark mm-hmm. Zuckerberg, that this is a, that is a conscious thing. And it is also a conscious replication of this kind of hero process in
2: the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know. that's fascinating. So it's not just yes.
0: Mark Zuckerberg, right. you know, involved in creating Facebook. There's right. all of these other of people. Course. That company and and that technology is, uh, you know, the 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 um, product properly seen as the product of a community. But then we have our hero, right. and and we, yeah. oh, we're only talking about Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. not the. Not the people who were involved in Napster mm-hmm. and then created Friendster, which right. was very similar yeah. to Facebook, yeah. and actually they're common investors and threads.
2: There's a community story Yeah, if there. you can put a person behind it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of us believe George Foreman made a grill.
0: <laughs> but there it is. Yeah,
2: you don't sell the grills. Yeah. Where wait, would Paninis I, be without that hero mm, culture? But it's much more subtle in that I don't think anyone thinks they're buying an apple because they like Steve Jobs. They think they like Some Steve Jobs did. because they because of his computers, but it, it's kind of a it goes both directions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very much like, so. He's
2: this cool guy. I'm gonna own that thing that he made that's so cool. Right,
0: right. Because right. he's because you you know, there is this now Certainly, the you know, irrespective of what he was like as an actual person, mm-hmm. this the the image of Steve Jobs gets created as a great genius, as a kind of aesthetic maestro, uh, as a embodiment somehow of nineteen sixties counterculture and mm-hmm. free thinking, mm-hmm. and all and and because of his, and this narrative is created because of his you know, singular genius and embodiment of all these things, his products Mm -hmm. are a certain way. And that becomes, you know, part agnostic about whether it's true or not, Mm -hmm. that becomes part of the experience of, of
2: buying it. And, and I think, um, I, I, I read one of my, one of my jobs I do from time to time is I read, uh, Test of English is a foreign language. Yes. TOEFL exams. Students from Korea and China and everywhere, Europe, and uh, write a personal essay based on a prompt. And one of the prompts is is, is you know, one of the possible prompts is always about something about whether we, whether everyone should go to college. Uh-huh. And and I read essay after essay about the great Steve Jobs who dropped out. Of uh, they usually say Harvard. I don't even remember. Reed. Ooh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they say Harvard, which is kind of conflating Bill Gates it's with Steve, Steve Jobs. But Steve Correct. Jobs is who they remember because he's more charismatic, and that's who he is. Oh my God, he's yeah. the great genius who didn't need to go to college.
0: Well, there. I mean, th- uh, there is no denying the fact that some of these, some of these characters who became really phenomenally successful and important in this personal computer game. You know, Bill Gates and Steve mm-hmm. Jobs both did that. There's no denying right. that that's true. I don't, but if you include the number of people who became wildly successful in the personal computer industry who had advanced degrees from
2: different colleges, it far outstrips. Yes, the sample size is very, very small to use those two <laughs> yes, as your examples exactly. to drop out of college. I
0: wouldn't recommend that to my own children right. if that was their ambition to Kids. be successful in technology, not to right. pursue education. Right. I think it's a much safer and
2: saner bet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that Yes uh, um, So here, le- let me switch to you for a second I'm going to pick your, yeah. your books off off the floor Yes here. Now, I've known you for a, almost a decade and, and I never really knew what you did with yourself Uh huh. I knew you were this nice guy who had dance parties sometimes <laughs> And you've been this historian Yeah and you write these books, yes. and the makers of the microchip mm-hmm. seems to be a, a book that's very much you know, uh, for people. Well, no, it 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 is a kind of it has a coffee table quality to it a little it bit. It does, yeah. It's an unusual book. The question is, what? You don't seem very attached to people knowing what you're doing unless they ask.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, uh, and and you know, publishing books. Uh, how is who do you want to be reading Moore's Law?
0: Well, that book was real, I mean, that was published by basic books mm-hmm. and, the, and the, the hope there was to make it as as broadly accessible as possible. Tell so, us quickly a, a brief of you know, It's a biography of Gordon Moore. Mm-hmm. and Gordon Moore was, along with Jean <laughs> Ernie, who we talked about earlier, was one of these people, recruited by Shockley Semiconductor into uh, recruited by William Shockley into the Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory one of the group of eight dissidents who quit and created Fairchild and uh, Gordon Moore was the director became the director of R&D at Fairchild mm-hmm. until 1968 when he and one of his fellow co-founders of Fairchild, they quit and they co-founded Intel. And um Gordon was really Gordon Moore was really the the kind of technological strategist um for most of the history of Intel and was its longest serving CEO and made arguably some of the most important uh
2: decisions in the company's history. Okay. Now, that said, <laughs> what is your, you know, in terms of your own ego and your own attention in putting the years in, how many years? Oh, God. 500-page well, book. Yeah, many years. Um, so pr- probably
0: Man, three no, years actively mm-hmm. writing it and, you know, 10 years or
2: more in, in learning the subject area. And what what gives you satisfaction and what frustrates? Hmm. We live in a world where everybody seems to be expected to have a public persona hmm. or to be doing something for other people to see. Hmm. That is different from other times in history. Hmm. A shoemaker in the past... Now a shoemaker Well, you know, if the ultimate goal of being a shoemaker would be if you have a shoemaker with a great YouTube channel. You know? Yeah. Um, so... In publishing this, in finishing and publishing it, what what would what well, do you your want hope to do? is that somebody reads
0: it. Yes, but who who's your who's your dream reader? <sighs> well, you know that that's a that's a very interesting question, and thankfully I didn't think about it very much when I was doing You're it doing the book, yeah. Um, and 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 still, when I'm doing things now in history, I mean. If you're interested in getting a mass audience, then you're not writing history of technology, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm because you're right away starting in a kind of a niche Mm -hmm. subgenre of Mm nonfiction that doesn't really have a place at borders. Right. Where does that book go? Mm -hmm. They're going to be like, ah, do we put it in the science section Mm -hmm. under general science or are we going to put it in biography? Mm -hmm. And to the extent that they would order it. But yeah, so you're not thinking it, you know, let it. Necessarily, but or
2: are you thinking about just wanting to finish it for its own sake? well, that was part of it, yeah, I mean you, you know, collaborated with two with with uh, two other people Arnold Thackeray and Rachel Jones, yeah uh, so i mean was it was it the idea of having this exists? It was important, I felt to uh, to you know
0: to encapsulate a take on the story and mm-hmm. have it available for people um Available for people interested in the history of science, interested in the his- well mm-hmm. history of technology, interested in the history of Silicon mm-hmm. Valley, interested in the history of California, interested yeah. in the history of electronics, those computing, those sorts
2: of areas. And in a long-term sense, a book like this will be used in the Stanford Library for many, many years.
0: I have been gratified in that the people who were there, who were part of this community that was actually responsible for intel and the silicon technology when i've talked to people who were there um like a guy who was um one of the chief technology people at intel for 30 years you know went like he read it and Mm -hmm. he told me you know you really got it you really got gordon moore's Mm -hmm. role and and you got you know you got it yeah then i was like all right you know then i felt like okay this is then a a kind of a if the people who lived it recognize themselves in it and say um that you've kind of got it um you know that's pretty gratifying Mm -hmm. and then i've also had people who were in the story, if you will, maybe not in the book, but in the story, um, say one of the co-founders of Fairchild Semiconductor, Jay Last, read the book and he was a business partner with Jean Arnie, who I mentioned before with the planar process, who they left, uh, Fairchild in 1961 and set up a new microchip company. And, uh, in the book, um, we Moore's law. We talk about Gordon Moore's reaction to that, and how he really felt it was one of the uh, his great failures in in the company to let Jean Ernie and Jay Last go mm-hmm. and their departure and and how much it uh, bothered him, etc. And uh, when Jay read the book, he hadn't quite known that before so th- so that was gratifying too that I don't know that um, that
2: even people yeah you get to help people inside who were learn part of it history, understand
0: yeah. it yeah so that I felt and that all goes to just feeling like you know there's this virtue I guess for you know being a historian you know this kind of while it's hard to say what it is to get the story right you kind of want to you mm-hmm. know you want to feel like you were true to the past mm-hmm. and true to the people who lived that past and and so to get that feedback was was pretty cool
2: mm-hmm. it sounds to me like for you that's more important than critic feedback um outside feedback from just you know
0: to be honest with you that that kind of the feedback from critics and stuff was just for me it was purely um a- like anxiety provoking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fear of embarrassment if I'm really honest. So uh
2: yeah, I you know, we've got that from other non-fiction authors more than fiction. Oh, really? Like that I got something wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: cuz you're spending so much yeah. time
0: trying to especially in writing non-fiction and and writing history, yeah. you know, there's no mm-hmm. um there's no way you can be certain that you're not getting something wrong and you're you're trying so hard not to get something wrong and it's even hard to know you know while you're doing it if something would be counted as wrong mm-hmm. and then and so so and that sorry. peer evaluation becomes important mm-hmm. and so I remember you know I was I was pretty stressed um, to see. When the review for the book came out in this journal called Technology and Culture, Mm -hmm. which is the main academic journal for historians of technology, Mm -hmm. it got a, a you know, okay, you know, like past muster sort of review, not like pull your hair out awesome review, but, Mm -hmm. you know, like solid contribution would be the condensed version. I felt such a sense of relief. Uh, from that and it did get reviewed quite close to when it came out in the um in the wall street journal which was probably the biggest circulation review that it got and Mm -hmm. there i was just gratified that um you know the review seemed very fair Mm -hmm. (laughs) and generally positive Mm -hmm. and that was that's what you, you know. Needed. I don't really care about yeah. the well. I'm sure the Wall Street <coughs> Journal has many, many good journalists who yeah. work for it, but um, you know, there it was just mm-hmm. because it was such a, a high circulation yeah. venue that I was concerned yeah. um, to see what they would say. Right.
2: <laughs> but you know, almost not as much. So we're certainly not as thrilled as having people in who are in 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 the story. Be like, yes. This is that our, this is our out, story. That has turned out to be the most gratifying mm-hmm. part.
0: I think my next venture, my next book project. I think I would
2: I'm like to gonna, do by myself. <laughs> do you have an idea? Um, Maybe I, you don't want to share it with him.
0: Well, no, I do. I have. I think that. Um, well, I think something ab- about the um, the spreadsheet. The history of the spreadsheet and this early personal computer software industry.
1: So you, you give
2: papers at conferences? Yeah. Once a year I go and I, I score uh, AP English exams. Yes. 3,000 teachers in airplane hangar sized rooms. And I've been working on doing, I want to do a piece with, there, there are people who have various degrees of fame a week, a year. Mm. The people who are the leaders and the head leader and each three rooms has a leader and the whole thing has this director who is literally some academic in 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 uh, uh a lit comp department somewhere <laughs> yeah. who publishes you know, is is kind of a big deal in, in this world. But once a year it's like
1: people would say you touched him.
2: <laughs> like friend I'd sat at a table with someone who's friends with the guy. Yeah. And he's a celebrity. He's a star. Uh and so I've kind of been collecting stories of people who are just the star of our little table and the star of the room yes and and the, the bathrobe guy cuz <laughs> we sh- struggle up every morning to do this you oh, do it yeah, 7 yeah. days a week 9 to 5 you read the answer to one essay question Ugh. for 8 hours a day yeah. and and so we look for little little people to entertain us um, and I guess we look for celebrities so that 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 kind of t- makes me think of going to conferences and giving a paper where for once you're the center of, of more you know of, of, of you know of attention of people who know what you do.
0: And that, I think is not to me, like when that is really working at its best, it is far removed from like this journey to the center of attention. but it's rather this like interchange where you're sharing something, mm-hmm. you're bringing something new. Your, or an idea that you've had or something that you've think you've found out about the past or about how something works and you share it
2: and people you hear all these people in person for once
0: right the people yeah you know every you know and this is a community so you get together you know every year mm-hmm. hopefully but it's it's more a process of sharing and 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 when I think that the criticism is the best, at these conferences where people are delivering papers is where, you know, then, uh, as an audience member, you know, you're offering something back to that person. Well, have you seen this thing? Or I found this thing over here that might be relevant, or I hear you're connecting to a theme that Mm -hmm. somebody over here is doing. So it's, it's more like, um, I, I think when, it's at its best, it's not at all like a performance, mm-hmm. and right. when it's worst it's very worst is when it is like a performance. when the speaker is up there, and you can tell it's like their ego is so present in it and or when people give comments or you know they do a little performance art piece about themselves in the form of a question. And it just is, you know what I mean? (laughs) I do. I mean, that that is so unbearable to me. That's at its worst. Um, But at its best, it seems very... Two-way. Ego-less and and two-way. But but it is funny. You know, I I was at the last meeting of this history of technology group called the Society for the History of Technology... Mm that I was at um, this very well-known and and highly respected um, French public intellectual uh, named Bruno Latour, who's written Mm -hmm. a lot in the field of science and technology studies Mm -hmm. and history of technology. He was the keynote speaker, Mm -hmm. opening speaker at this conference. And for many people, certainly for me, it was my first time to actually see Bruno, Bruno Latour talk. And so that was kind of cool to like mm-hmm. get to see him. But there was definitely some of my colleagues who are like grown people like full professors at good places Mm -hmm. you know were like oh my god we we were in the elevator with bruno latour and he couldn't figure out like the key card thing to make the elevator go so we helped bruno latour figure out the key card thing in the hotel elevator and get to his his hotel floor so that was definitely like you know the star of the meeting you know um (laughs) <laughs> Which is funny, just such unlikely people yeah. to be Yeah. That's what's funny about that week when yeah. I'm going
2: to score that there are these people who there's some people who just really enjoy that week. And there, there are some people who are like, I I'm an administrator, just don't don't treat me like <laughs> yeah. this. I don't know how to handle this. Yeah. Uh but it generally no horrible egos about yeah. it that I've seen. Yeah. Um or else they would have gone into some other business. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> Well, thanks. I, I I I look forward to listening to to some of these yeah people and to. Well, I will try and think of um, some
0: some people least deserving of their obscurity yeah. from like the history of technology. Maybe that's what we'll do for history of of computing mm-hmm.
2: and um, and we can do little minis after this. Yeah, A little fifteen minutes. biographies of people least deserving of their obscurity. We'll think of a pithy title between the two of us for
1: this segment. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. To find David Brock's books, look for him in your favorite bookshop of choice under David C. as in Cat Brock, B-R-O-C-K. To learn more about the Center for Software History and the Computer History Museum and to watch some of these oral histories go to computerhistory.org and you will find your way in from there. Next week I'll be talking to an author with a very different outlook on fame Neil Pollack author of Alternidad and the Neil Pollack Anthology of American Literature. And we'll tell you more about that next week. As ever, please, if you have an iTunes account, get on there and rate us and review us and and subscribe. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen to your podcasts, it means a lot in ways that you don't want me to bother explaining right now. You can find all of our episodes there. Or at 15 minutes jamieburger.com. That's one five minutes jamieburger.com. Thanks as ever to Ed for making us sound pretty and thanks to you for listening. This is fifteen minutes. I'm
2: Jamie Burger.